Thank God for the doctrines of grace because on account of them we can sing to the praise of his glorious grace as we can rest assured that he will hold us fast in Christ. I want to invite you to accompany me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Our verses are 40 to 45. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Thus says the word of God. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus no longer openly could enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. Well, I would remind you that the Gospel of Mark begins in chapter 1 and verse 1 with a kind of inscription that describes the content of the entire book. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you recall, we explained that there were three ways that that term, euangelion, gospel, was used in the early church. In chronological order, first was to describe the announcement that the Lord Jesus Christ himself made as he inaugurated his ministry and preached the good news that the kingdom of God had drawn near through its appointed king, the Messiah. And then later, that term good news came to be used to describe the summary of the saving work of Jesus Christ epitomized in his death and his resurrection for us and for our sins. And the third way it came to be used is as the formal title of the four canonical gospels that tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, as was the custom in ancient days, the first sentence of a given literary composition would be deemed its title. And so, as we see in the opening of the Gospel of Mark, the title of this book is The Gospel of Jesus Christ According to Mark. And as the gospel, you see, the good news of Jesus Christ characterizes, first of all, 
not only the content of the entire narrative itself that has a structure and a flow that's systematic and coherent in nature and that culminates toward the end of the book, but also that word gospel characterizes through and through all the individual passages and stories that Mark relates to us in this book. And so not only is the entire book the gospel, but Mark is, as it were, cycling through the gospel again and again and again in order to relay its primary foundational core heart truths uh, in a repeated manner so that it would be utterly clear to us and so no reader could possibly miss it. And so even though Mark isn't big on the words of Christ, there are quite a few words of Christ in this gospel, but not so many compared to the other three canonical gospels. Mark is big on the actions of Christ, but the actions them, uh, of Christ themselves are meant to reveal to us precisely who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he accomplishes it is great work of redemption. And so the miracles of Christ and the exorcisms of Christ and all these mighty signs and wonders that our Lord was performing are meant to be parables, as it were, of spiritual truths. They actually literally occurred historically, but they're meant to be parabolic and that they convey to us these great theological and Christological truths. And Mark is a master at compacting within a short story about something Jesus did, grand truths about his person and work. And that's precisely what we see here in this text in the miracle of the cleansing of the leper. We must remember that this is God's word. And as such, it is always speaking. It didn't just speak 2,000 years ago when it was first written, but it continues to speak today. It wasn't written just for an ancient people. It's not just an account of historical occurrences that are past and out of touch with the world today. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living, it's alive, and it has never died. It is just as alive right here, right now, as it has always been. There is no part of scripture that gets buried with the times of sand. You know, that's what the liberals try to tell us. That the Bible was written for an ancient people in an ancient context. And that it's out of touch with the needs and challenges of today. But this is God's living word. This is God's living voice to us. There's an ongoing dynamism and supernaturalism about it because it's inspired by God. And the spirit who inspires the word accompanies the word when it's read, when it's expounded, and when it's received by the people of God. The reformers would call the exposition of the word of God the viva vox Dei, the living voice of God because it addresses us today with as much relevance, authority, and pertinence to our lives as if God himself were descending from heaven to speak to us with an audible voice. 
And when it comes to this text, we will miss its, its significance altogether if we fail to see how it's rich with revelation about the most foundational truths of the gospel that we can build our faiths and lives upon. This story is a part of the gospel, hence Mark is weaving the grand themes of the gospel right through the narrative so that what we are given in this little story is basically the gospel in miniature. It's the gospel in succinct, compact form. And so as I attempt to open up this text by way of exposition, I'll point out how this story intersects with some of the major gospel themes. Consider in the first place the leper's predicament. The leper's predicament. Verse 40 says, Now a leper came to him. A leper. What is this leprosy? What the Bible calls leprosy is, in fact, a variety of diseases of the skin. And that Greek word that's used, just like the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, both words are broad in their semantic range. Detailed rules are given in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 about how the priests should distinguish between malignant and non-malignant forms of leprosy, and only those diagnosed as malignant resulted in exclusion from society, because not only were they loathsome diseases, but they could also be contagious. Leviticus distinguishes, in fact, between skin infections, boils, Leviticus 13, 18, burns that become infected, also in Leviticus 13, and itches and rashes and scalp conditions and many other things. Scribes, in the days of our Lord Jesus, counted as many as 72 different afflictions that were all defined under that broad term, leprosy. In a world in which antibacterial soap had not been invented, plumbing, systems of sanitation did not yet exist, Leprosy affected quite a bit of the population, a whole lot more than it does today. Couple that with a hot climate and the ancient practice of bathing, believe it or not, about once every week or two, skin diseases became common and contagious ones could spread like wildfire. Well, what modern medicine calls true leprosy is known as Hansen's disease. And that was also rampant in the ancient world. The disease is thought to have originated in Egypt because the bacteria that cause it were found in the bandages of a mummy. Entire colonies of people that had this disease and related diseases would form squatter colonies on the outskirts of major cities. Most biblical scholars think that the man in our text probably had true leprosy, or what we call Hansen's disease. William Thompson was a Presbyterian minister. He was a scholar, and he became a missionary to the East and to the Middle East. And he traveled extensively. He visited Israel to gather insights into the biblical world 
and to document them thoroughly, later to publish them in a book in 1869 called The Land and the Book. This was before modern medicine found a cure for Hansen's disease. Thompson described the lepers he found as follows, quote, the hair falls from the head and eyebrows, the nails loosen, decay, and drop off, joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrink up and slowly fall away, the gums are absorbed, the teeth disappear, the nose, the eyes, the tongue, and the palate are slowly consumed, end quote. Hansen's was observed to eat away at the flesh. Its victims were loathsome specimens of a decaying humanity languishing under a slow, torturous process of death, full of sores and rotting flesh that would consume their extremities. This may be the malady of uh, Lazarus, in fact, in the parable that our Lord told of the beggar Lazarus that, Lazarus that sat at the door of the rich man, where he said of him, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. In modern times, groundbreaking research about Hansen's and leprosy in general has been done by Dr. Paul Brand, who died in 2003. He was a medical missionary to India, and he pioneered treatments for Hansen's. Dr. Brand discovered that the disfigurements and mangling caused by Hansen's is mostly because it destroys the nerves. Kent Hughes explains, the disease acts as an anesthetic, bringing numbness to the extremities as well as to the ears, eyes, and nose. The devastation that follows come from such incidents as reaching one's hand into a charcoal fire to retrieve a dropped potato or washing one's face with scalding water, or gripping a tool so tightly that the hands become traumatized and eventually waste away and become stump-like. Dr. Brand speaks of the story of a little kid that he saw and he was trying to open, Brand was trying to open this gate that had a key and he, he couldn't get enough force to turn the key because of the pressure and pain inflicted on his hand. And the little boy walked up to the key and just turned it right away and walked right in, only to have his hand dripping with blood. Lepers literally scrape off their extremities by accident because they can't feel them. Dr. Brand called the disease a painless hell. While the physical pain isn't that bad, it's the emotional, psychological pain that, occasion is, that occasions the living hell that lepers suffer. Hansen still exists today. Though rare in the United States, in the last 30 years, over 6,000 new cases were reported. Every year, about 200 new cases are reported in the U.S. alone. It's actually carried by some armadillos in the southern states. So if you see an armadillo, you might not want to pick it up. The WHO reports that there, are, there were 1,000, or 127,000 rather, 127,558 leprosy cases detected globally in 2020 just in the year 2020 alone, according to official figures from 139 countries. 
Right now, over 200,000 people have the disease around the world, mainly in Asia, Africa, and some in Brazil. And although it's not highly contagious, we are told that leprosy, says the WHO, is likely transmitted via droplets from the nose and mouth during close and frequent contact with untreated cases. So even in ancient times when disease transmission was not understood, we see the wisdom of God in mandating that lepers be quarantined. Leviticus 13, verses 45 to 46, describes how they ought to have conducted themselves. Now the leper on whom the sore is, it says, his clothes shall be torn and the head bare so that everybody can see there's something wrong with this guy. And it says, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, as he walks through the midst. He shall be unclean. All the days he has a sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Yet there is more going on than just protection of the health of the community, a point to which I'll return in a bit because it actually has a theological and Christological significance to it. In the Jewish oral tradition known as the Mishnah, there's a tractate called Negaim, literally plagues. And it talks about the rabbinical teaching concerning leprosy. Houses, garments, and objects touched by lepers were pronounced unclean. Anything the leper touched would be unclean. People were not permitted to even greet or speak to a leper. Lepers had to stand at a distance of four cubits from everybody at all times, and a hundred cubits if upwind. Lepers were looked upon with fear, superstition, and repulsion. One rabbi, during the time of Jesus, near that time, even spoke of throwing stones at a leper to shoo him off, just like they would do with dogs. Lepers were social outcasts. James Edward writes, Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health, and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family, and fellowship, and worshiping community. No health, no job, no opportunities, no family, no friends, no church, nobody, nothing. It was a living death. Josephus speaks of the banishment of lepers, and he describes it this way. They in no way differ from a corpse. They were dead to society, and society was dead to them. And not only were lepers treated like corpses, but their disease was seen as the equivalent to a sentence of death, which was incurable, absolutely incurable. Only God could cure it. When God sent Moses in the Exodus, the sign that he gave him to prove that he had been sent by God was to stick his hand in his bosom and to pull it out and show it to the people. 
And when he did that, it was full of leprosy, it says, like snow. And then he put his hand back in his bosom and pulled it out again, and his flesh was restored soundly. Only God could cure leprosy. That was the point. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're told that Naaman, remember him, the commander of the army of Syria, that he was a leper. When Naaman heard that there was a prophet in Israel who could cure him, the king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel. And verses 5 to 6 say, in 2 Kings 5, that he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Can you imagine being the king and getting a letter like that? And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? To cure leprosy was an act of God beyond the power of any mere man. Elisha, of course, was used to cleanse him, which happened when Naaman plunged himself into the Jordan River seven times, which, by the way, is the same river that our Lord was baptized as a proleptic picture of his own death and resurrection and redemptive work. But there's more background to leprosy in the Bible than that as well. And this is what makes the story of Mark 1 so significant as a picture of the gospel. Leprosy is depicted in Leviticus as uncleanness, which bars one from the holy camp and from the holy tabernacle of God's presence. Leprosy, in fact, was seen by the Jews as a curse from God. And that's because numerous times in the Bible, uh, rebellious people were struck with leprosy. In Numbers 12, when Miriam, the sister of Moses, spoke against Moses, God smote her with leprosy for seven days. She was banished from the camp. In 2 Kings chapter 5, when Gehazi, the wayward servant of Elisha, was, uh, when he sought to make merchandise off of the prophet of God, the prophet declared an imprecation upon him, and the leprosy of Naaman uh, uh, struck Gehazi and stuck with him for generations. Also in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, when Uzziah the king rushed into the temple to offer incense, even though he was not a priest, the text says he became a leper for the rest of his days and had to live in private quarters. The book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, actually says that we're all lepers, and it uses leprosy as a metaphor for human, pervasive, rotten, putrefying sinfulness. He says, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, listen to this, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. There's the leprosy. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. 
And so we have biblical warrant for viewing leprosy as a kind of metaphor or spiritual picture for sin. There are numerous parallels between leprosy and sin. Both exist in the world because of the fall and curse of man. Both excluded one from access to the temple courts, leprosy from the physical temple, sin from the temple of God's immediate presence in heaven. Both cause defilement, one physical and the other moral and spiritual. Both corrupt the very nature of the person infected. Both are vile and repugnant in their own ways. Both cause numbness and loss of feeling, the former of the bodily extremities, the latter of the heart and conscience. Both are a sentence of death. Both condemn a person to a constant living death. Both are progressive, perpetual, and pervasive in their effects. Both were incurable by man. A leper could not cleanse himself the sitter cannot make himself righteous. You need a priest to be cleansed. Mark wants us to see in our text a parable, a picture of ourselves, because spiritually we are by nature as fallen in the exact same condition as that leper. And unless you see yourself as a spiritual leper, you will never see your need for cleansing by Christ. The light of the Holy Spirit's awakening and convicting influences shows us when the light of the law and the gospel shines into our hearts. He reveals that we are a corrupt mass of putrefying flesh. Our spiritual and moral depravity renders us unable to cleanse ourselves and unwilling to do so in fact. Unwilling to be cleansed, that is. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3.12, we are unable to do good. Jeremiah 13.23 says, we can no more do good than a leopard can change his spots. And we could add, or that a leper could cleanse himself. We need more than instruction we need more than advice and counsel and comfort and healing. We need a new nature wrought in our hearts by the supernatural transforming grace of the power of the gospel. Our text is leading up to Mark 2.17 where Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. He said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so do you see yourself as a sinner, not just by choice, but by nature, not just as something you've done, but something you are as fallen, as alienated from God, as separated from the life of God? If not, then there's no hope for you until you awaken to that reality. But if you see yourself as a spiritual leper, then note what happens next. The Lord's compassion. The Lord's compassion. Verse 41 says Jesus was moved 
with compassion. But notice the leper's disposition before him as he came. He came confessing his leprosy. He came exposing it openly. He wasn't hiding it. He wasn't trying to cover it up. You know, too, too many people are in denial about their condition. They claim that they are not lepers in any spiritual sense. They tell us that the problem with Reformed theology is that it makes too much of human sinfulness. They tell us that we exaggerate how fallen and corrupt mankind is. But no, my friends, Protestant theology didn't make this up. Scathing as it is, it's what the Bible teaches. We believe you have to confess your sins, that you have to confess your sinfulness to receive the pardon of the Lord. And if you fail to confess, as Proverbs 28, 13 says, you will not receive God's mercy. You have to confess. And part of confession, as I said, is confessing not just what we've done. It's not saying that we are generally good people that sometimes have messed up and made a mistake and committed some sin. But it's to see ourselves as rotten and putrid. As Job himself said, I am abominable and vile. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. True confessing is confessing our fallenness. Now, note that this leper, first of all, came to him. That's what the text says. He came to him. He went to the right person. He came to Jesus. He had heard, evidently, about the Lord's miraculous power. And by this time in the narrative, the fame of the great name of Jesus was reverberating throughout all Galilee. He must have heard that Jesus had the power to do what no man could do. But out of all the lepers in the region, and there were many, there came just this one. Luke will later tell the story about ten lepers that came to Jesus, but that's still just a few, comparatively. But in this case, we have just one. He heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He heard that this man could be the Messiah, and he came to him for healing. The others stayed behind, just like when the word of God goes out today. Most don't respond in faith. Most aren't moved. Most aren't stirred. Most don't come to Jesus. They hear the good news about Jesus Christ, and they remain in unbelief, indifferent, apathetic toward the command and the offer and the promise of the gospel. But not with this man. He came, and he came with some degree of faith. And this man... With this man, the reports about the power of Jesus sparked some kind of hope in him. Some kind of hope. And that for the first time in many years. And so he came to him. He knew that Jesus was his only hope. And he had no recourse to anybody but him. And so he broke through all social and societal conventions in order to come to Jesus. Lepers, as we read in Leviticus, couldn't just intrude through the masses like this. Jesus was always pressed about with many people, but here comes this leper, and he's pressing through. In Luke 17, 12, the ten lepers there who came to Jesus, Luke tells us that they stood 
afar off. But not this man. He trampled the Mishnah under his feet. He violated the ceremonial code of the law of Moses. But he was desperate. He was desperate. In the light of his problem, no action that could remedy it was too extreme, even if it provoked the abhorrence of all those around him. He didn't care what they thought. If only he could be made well. And verse 40 tells us that he came imploring him, kneeling down to him, and making his request. Imploring means that he was entreating him, urging him, appealing to him, making a heartfelt request to him. He knew what he wanted, but he had a kind of desperation about it when he came. And so he was kneeling down, begging as he made his petition. There was a humility about him, desperation and humility. And you know, that's not a bad place to be before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you are broken and shattered to pieces, you are in a perfect place for the Lord to glorify himself by putting those pieces back together and making you whole. And so he says to the Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He didn't doubt the Lord's ability to cleanse him, only the Lord's willingness to. There was a good reason for that. He didn't know much about Jesus at this time. He had only heard of his miraculous powers as a prophet from God, perhaps as the Messiah. But he had no clue whether the Lord would heal a despised, lowly, rejected, downcast, outcast, miserable leper like him. You see, he had no claim upon Jesus. And he recognized that. And there's a parallel here that we need to recognize as well. You know, I always get alarmed when I hear people speak as if God owes them cleansing from their sin. As if they have some kind of claim upon God. We are entirely at God's mercy, dear friends. And if he cleanses us and accepts us, it's not because he owed us anything but because of his grace alone. But look at how Jesus responds to this humbled, broken sinner. Verse 41, verse 41 says, he was moved with compassion. In the Greek, it's splagnizomai, strong word in the Greek. It's describing literally the inward parts. Jesus had a visceral reaction of deep empathy. Here is the Holy Son of God, sympathetic for sinners. Mark 6.24 will use this word again to describe how the Lord views not just this leper, but the multitudes. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. Oh, brethren, we can take joy in the fact that we do not serve or believe in a reluctant Savior. 
our Lord had no qualm whatsoever with this man. Every rabbi in the day had a qualm with this man. Every rabbi in his day looked upon him with abhorrence and repugnance, but our Lord had no qualm with him, no objection for his breaking through the crowd, no disinclination toward him, no hesitancy in responding. The sinner's brokenhearted appeal moves the heart of Christ in love and affection. And notice that our Lord never responded this way to those who are full of themselves, those who are self-righteous, self-sufficient. He rather responded toward them with indignation. But the broken, the desperate, the humbled, the needy sinner who implores him for his mercy out of sincere faith will never find an unapproachable Christ. You know, great men in this world tend to be unapproachable to the masses, but not so with Jesus. And with those men, if you ever happen to break through and to get near them, they get bothered by it and immediately seek to erect barriers and maintain distance. And sadly, I know of even very esteemed and famed preachers who are like that. But not so with the Lord Jesus. He is eminently, eminently approachable by any person at any time if only we approach in the way of faith and humility. And this is so because of his heart of compassion. And so look at how the Lord responds to this man. Notice the leper's cleansing. Verse 41 says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. These are the best words this leper ever heard. The most delightful news that ever rang in his ears. Verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. There's Mark's, one of Mark's favorite words again, immediately. Here stressing the instantaneous, miraculous, complete cleansing of this leper. The infectious bacteria died. His flesh was restored like new. If he was missing an eye or ear or fingers or toes, they probably grew back in a moment. Since Luke 14, 13 says, Jesus healed even the maimed and mutilated. This was a foretaste of the kingdom to come, a token of the power of the resurrection that all of God's people will know at the end of the age. But what's remarkable here is precisely how the Lord healed this man. How he healed him. It says, he stretched out his hand and touched him. He could have healed him with a word, as he did in the case of many others. But the Lord's actions here are symbolic, even parabolic, of spiritual truths. He wanted the leper to know his touch. He wanted the disciples and the multitudes to see him touching the leper. This is surprising. In fact, it would have been shocking in his days. Everybody around would have gasped in horror, out loud, verbally. This was 
contrary to every social norm that existed. It was taboo in the quintessential sense of the term. But even though it was contrary to the law, Jesus wasn't breaking any moral commandment of the law. Because in the law, separation from lepers was a matter of ritual or cultic purity. But the Holy One of God, you see, he couldn't be defiled by anything that was unclean. In Mark 5.41, he takes the hand of a dead girl and raises her up from death. Such a touch was forbidden by all except nearest of kin or those who had to handle the body. And even then, they would have to observe a quarantine period and ritual purification afterwards. But not so with Jesus. The impeccable Christ could not be defiled. Rather, his purity, his life, his virtue flowed from him and blasted away all impurity and uncleanness. He is the high priest who doesn't need to go through ritual washings and purifications of a ceremonial nature because his purity and holiness is infinite, imminent, inherent, and essential to his person. So rather than the purity of Christ being contaminated by this leper, it was the purity of Christ that flowed the other way and made the leper clean. By the way, it's because of this cultic background that association with uh, this association of leprosy with uncleanness, um, that, that's what it calls it, uncleanness. And that's why the Bible never speaks of healing leprosy, only of cleansing it. It's always cleansed. But why specifically did Jesus go out of his way to touch the leper? Well, in the first place, as I just said, it's to reveal something about who he is. Here we have a rabbi who has no concern whatsoever for ceremonial impurity. That was unheard of among the rabbis. And yet here is the one who teaches the way of God in truth, as they said of him, whose doctrine surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees in authority as well as in its standard of righteousness and holiness, and yet there's no concern for ceremonial uncleanness whatsoever. It's meant to provoke the why question from onlookers. And the reason is because of what I said, Jesus could not be contaminated. That's the point he's making. And the proof of that is in the power of the healing miracles on all these occasions. If there was death, it was gone. If there was leprosy, it was gone. If there was an unclean woman with a flow of blood, the the flow dried up and she was healed, it was gone. And so this miracle is therefore an implicit theological testimony to his sinlessness and impeccability and divine nature as the one who could not be defiled in any way, shape, or form. We needed a Savior that was holy, that was uh, sinless, that was separate from sinners so that he could represent us before the throne of God and cleanse us and heal us and save us and redeem us. But there's also another reason he touched him. And this is quite evident in the text. In fact, this just jumps out. This, this leaps out from the text. 
because the grammar indicates that Jesus touched him while being moved with compassion. The touch was motivated by deep, visceral compassion. He touched him as a gesture of his compassionate acceptance of the man and of the man's petition. Nobody had touched this leper in a very long time. The affirmation of a human touch was long forgotten by him. If he was married or had kids, he had not known their touch for years. Everybody around him did everything they could to avoid touching him by any means possible, even if it meant throwing rocks and dirt at him to shoo him away. But here he makes his petition, and Jesus steps towards him, and he touches him with a gesture of warmth, of affection, of love, of concern, of tender mercy. And not with a condescending tone, but in sympathetic warm-heartedness, he says, I am willing. Know my heart. Know the heart of the sympathetic living Christ. Know the heart of God who is love. I am willing. Christ's grand, noble heart of love is unsurpassed in human history. You know, since he came, many have sought to follow and imitate his example. But he is the unique character of history who literally pioneered this radical behavior of self-denying love. He's the only one. In fact, Jesus was the motivation for Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand functioned his entire medical career as a missionary, as a missionary. He was a famous doctor who specialized in leprosy. And here's what uh, Christian author Philip, Nance, uh, Philip Yancey writes about an interview he had with Dr. Brand. They actually co-authored a book together. Yancey says this, leprosy is a devastatingly lonely disease, Dr. Brand told me. In many countries, its victims are kicked out of their homes, rejected by the community, and sometimes forced to live outdoors by a pile of rocks or in a cave. They lose contact with other humans. He told me of one memorable encounter. Dr. Brand said, I was examining the hands of a bright young man, trying to explain to him in my broken Tamil, that's the language over there, that we could halt the progress of the disease and perhaps restore some movement to his hand. I expected him to smile in response, but instead he began to shake with muffled sobs. Have I said something wrong? I asked my assistant in English. Did he misunderstand me? She quizzed him in a spurt of Tamil and replied, No, doctor. He says he is crying because you put your hand on his shoulder. Until he came here, no one had touched him for many years. In fact, the care and treatment of lepers in history is owing mostly to the example of our Lord in healing this leper in this text. Did you know that? 
In the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi famously embraced a leper on a street, and he made history for it. It was nuns in the medieval era who founded over 2,000 homes in France and 300 in England devoted to the care of lepers. Philip Yancey writes, these nuns could do little but bind wounds and change dressings. But the homes themselves, called Lazarettos, after Lazarus in the parable with the rich man, the dogs came and licked his sores, so they called these homes Lazarettos. He says, the homes themselves helped break the hold of the disease in Europe by limiting transmission and improving, limit, uh, improving li living conditions. The disease virtually disappeared from the continent as a result of their labors. And Yancey observes most of the major advances in the understanding and treatment of leprosy have come from medical missionaries. They were the only ones willing to risk exposure at a time when leprosy victims were made to live outside the village and to wear a bell to announce their presence. Oh, brethren, we as a church of Jesus Christ need to take heart of this. The example of our Lord bursting with compassion and love toward those afflicted with sin and its consequences. Not only are we all spiritual lepers in need of the Lord's healing touch ourselves, but we live in the midst of a leprous people, a world broken by sin and its consequences. And to quote Kent Hughes again, I love this quote. He said, we will never affect others as Christ did unless there is contact and identification we have to be willing to take the hand of those whom we would help. He says, sometimes a touch, caring involvement, will do a thousand times more than our theology. This is what all churches need to do, he says. We are great in theory. We are careful about our doctrine. But we need to lay our hand on some rotting flesh in our neighborhood, in the executive towers where we work, in the city slums, he says. In other words, we need to get down to where the people are and to love them into the kingdom by our words and our deeds. We need to get where they are in the world in order to bring them up to where we are in the kingdom as we are moved and motivated and animated by the love of our Lord. Consider in the last place our Lord's predicament. Our Lord's predicament. Verses 43 to 44 say, And Jesus strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The law prescribed that a leper should be examined by the priest, by a priest, and only the priest could pronounce him clean. The leper would then offer sacrifices as mandated by the law of Moses, and the priest would concede to him a, a certificate of his cleansing that gave him permission to reintegrate into society. 
Jesus, in this case, not only upholds the law, but he commands this, saying, as a testimony to the priests, as a testimony to them. Well, what's he getting at by that? As a testimony to what? Well, in the year before, he had already been to the temple, and he had already made a whip with cords and driven out the money changers from the temple, overturning their tables and declaring, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations and foretelling of his resurrection. So the priests knew of him. His notoriety, his fame had already spread through the Jerusalem courts. But I think there's something more that he's getting at. I think what he's saying here is that a greater priest has come. A greater priest was here who could cleanse what they couldn't. His priesthood would supersede and replace their own priesthood. Well, Jesus strictly warned the leper not to say anything to anyone. The Greek is rather strong. It's a double, ne double negative in the Greek and with a subjunctive construction and, and, and the way it's portrayed. It's the strongest possible way that Jesus could have issued this prohibition in the Greek. But verse 45 reads, nonetheless... However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. Now the text suggests that that's a bad thing. This man disobeyed Jesus, but he disobeyed Jesus out of the exhilaration and the excitement and the joy of having been cleansed. And so if you frame his disobedience to the injunction of Jesus within the context of the rest of Mark's gospel, the overwhelming context of Mark's gospel actually portrays this as a good thing, as a positive thing. And you know what the Greek actually says, literally. It says a leper went out and spread, the New King James here says, the matter. The Greek says he spread the logos. He spread the word. He spread the word. The same phrase is used in the book of the Acts to speak of the proclamation of the gospel and the spread of the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire, the known world at the time. And so the original recipients of Mark would have understood this phrase as a reference not to the matter, but to the word, to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet all these stories about the Lord's healing powers, they drew a lot of attention, and the people chased after him and pressed about him, and it says he had to remain outside the city. And so that's the predicament that the Lord found himself in. There's a predicament here. He traded places with the leper. The outcast could now dwell in the city. But Jesus had to remain outside, Mark says, in the deserted places. Mark is showing us in principle, you see, that a kind of substitution took place. A substitution. Mark is illustrating the key verse of his gospel where he says in 1045, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he did. He served the leper 
and he gave himself to take the place of the leper. He traded places. He came to take the place of sinners, those broken by sin and its effects, in order to make them whole by substituting and taking their place before God. That's part of the reason for the touch, too. The identification of Jesus with sinners. There is a vicarious identification going on there with the leper. And so to return to Leviticus, you'll recall that I said that it's not just for health purposes that it mandated that lepers should go outside the camp, but it's for theological purposes. There was more going on than just the physical aspect of preventing the spread of disease. Nothing showing such obvious effects of a fallen world, such as leprosy, was permitted into the holy presence of God. You remember cripples couldn't enter into the temple courts and, and many others who had deformities and diseases about them because the temple was a, 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 prophet, a prophetic foreshadowing of heaven. They could not dwell with God. But all that was a picture to prepare us for the gospel and to point us to this element of substitution whereby, as Hebrews 13, verses 11 to 13 say, Jesus suffered outside the camp for us. He was banished from the presence of God. He was excommunicated in the curse of the cross. He's the one that was forsaken so we can be accepted. So now we can go inside the camp like the leper so that we can have access to the temple, so we can enjoy communion with God and with the saints. So isn't it incredible how just in this little story of five verses, we have such a concise, complete picture of the gospel. The major elements of the gospel are all here. Our plight in sin, our sinful nature, the need to confess our condition, faith, humility, calling on Christ, cleansing from our condition, the purity and power of the Lord, vicarious substitution, and proclaiming the good news. All those elements are here in our text because Mark wants us to encounter Jesus Christ just like this leper did, just like this leper did. And so, can we say that we have? If so, do we keep the good news to ourselves? Or do we proclaim it freely to a world that has no other hope except that we tell them of the wonderful things that Christ has done for our souls? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the power of the gospel, that there is no effect of sin and the curse that the blood of your Son is not efficacious to fully, completely, perfectly, all-sufficiently, and permanently cleanse us from. We thank you for the cleansing that we have in Christ. We thank you for filling our hearts with joy. We ask, Lord, that our joy may be full and our joy may abound so that we can testify to all the world about the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go with us now, Lord, as we disperse, accompany 
all of us, Father, with your blessing and with the pardon and peace of the gospel. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.